Welcome to episode 14 of the Echo Ever Proudly podcast. I'm Brian Egan from the class of 86. Thanks for pressing play and letting us share these stories about Gonzaga with you. And real quick, thanks to everyone who made this year's Mother's Club Gala the best one ever. I think they smashed all fundraising records. And how about Brian Johnson, Gonzaga graduate, kicking the game-winning field goal in Vegas for the Washington football team. It's been an exciting couple of days on I Street, that is for sure. This weekend, the Gonzaga Fathers Club is putting on the DC Classic Basketball Tournament. And on this episode, we're exploring Gonzaga's founding fathers. This fall, Gonzaga celebrated its bicentennial, and today we're going back to the very beginning. Now, many of us know that Father Anthony Coleman is credited with starting the Washington Catholic Seminary in 1821. The Coleman Address, Coleman Hall, both bear his name. But there was another figure, Father William Matthews, who was just as important to the school's survival in the first three decades. We'll get to Father Matthews later, but let's begin episode 14 by examining Father Anthony Coleman, the man. Through the eyes of Tim Now from the class of 61. Tim, what inspired you to take such an in-depth look at the life of Anthony Coleman? Well, I don't know if I can really answer that question well, but I guess um, 1957, that was the year I began at Gonzaga, I was sent to Jug in Coleman Hall. Coleman Hall, I thought, what's that? Why is it called that? He was the founder of Gonzaga, and I don't think I learned anything else about him back in those days. There was a 50th anniversary of my class of 1961. I saw that Coleman Hall was still there, and that got me thinking again. I think I was born with a history gene. I've always felt that I don't really know a person until I find out about their background. After retiring, I started sending off for books about him, did a lot of research on the internet, and just I quickly found out that he was more than a local figure. He wasn't just somebody who founded Gonzaga. That was an important thing to do, but he did a lot of other important things in his life, and I just found him a fascinating figure. What was one of the things that surprised you in your research about Father Coleman? In addition to being a very important figure in the development of Catholicism in America, he had quite an interesting career in Europe. He was a big deal in Rome after he left Gonzaga. So he's a really interesting figure, and he had a passionate personality that meant that he often got in trouble. Nobody doubted that he was anything but a very good man, a very good, pious priest, but he had a kind of rough manner that put some people off. All right, Tim, let's go back to the beginning with Anthony Coleman. Tell us about where he grew up. He was born in a small town in Alsace called Kaisersberg. It was German-speaking, so his family were German speakers, but it was in the Kingdom of France. As he grew up, he learned French, and his education was mainly in French. But anyway, he had this kind of uh, cosmopolitan background because of where he came from, and he later learned all sorts of other languages, and he was really a, a kind of... Uh, a linguist and polymath who got along in seven or eight different countries during his career. Now, Father Coleman was born in 1771, which means he would have been in his mid to late teens as the French Revolution is taking hold in France. How much did that impact his worldview? I think it totally changed him. The French Revolution was the big event of his life. It happened when he was about 18. He vehemently hated the French Revolution. 
and everything that it stood for, such as uh, democracy. He didn't like that very much. He didn't like the overthrow of the king, and he didn't like the rationalism of the people who started the, the French Revolution. All of this because what he could see where he lived was violence. The revolution brought strife. Millions of people died in the wars that began with the French Revolution. That's how he saw it. He's, he saw this as a revolt against tradition, especially against the tradition of the Catholic religion. And uh, he became a priest and spent his whole life fighting against the forces that had been unleashed by the French Revolution. Tell us a little bit about what drew him into the Society of Jesus. It seems that a couple of his relatives, two uncles of his, were Jesuits. The Society of Jesus was suppressed by the King of France, but eventually the Catholic kings of Europe persuaded the Pope to suppress the Jesuits everywhere. The school that he attended, the sort of high school that he went to in a nearby town called Colmar, was a former Jesuit school. And I've interviewed the headmaster of that school now. I went to Kaisersburg to, to see all these places that are associated with Colmar, spoke to the head of the high school, and he said that during the period when the Jesuits were officially suppressed, they still continued to be the faculty at that school. So Coleman would have been under the influence of the Jesuits, even though in a legal sense, they didn't exist at that moment in time. So what does Coleman become if he doesn't become a Jesuit? Well, he becomes something else, uh, father of the faith or father of the sacred heart. I think they had different names, but what they were crypto Jesuits. They were the old Jesuits who obeyed the Pope by disbanding the order officially, but kept together, some of them, and lived in a, a community under a different name. So that's who he joined. What's the path that takes him from being a priest in Europe to America? First of all, Coleman went to Austria and joined the army that was fighting the French Revolution and a little bit later on, Napoleon. And uh, in the Austrian army, he was a sort of chaplain. And he had a very good reputation for piety and charity and making converts. In other words, he would look after the sick and wounded of the Austrian army, along with other chaplains. And he converted many Protestants who were in that army because he was thought of as a kind of saintly figure. He also found out there was one place where the Jesuits were still legal, and that was the Russian Empire. So he went there and became officially a Jesuit because that was the one place where it was legal to be a Jesuit at that time. And then while he was in the Russian Empire, an appeal came from the Catholics of the United States asking for Jesuits to come and help the Catholic Church in America. And he eagerly took up that cause and moved to America in 1806. When he arrives in 1806, is it New York? Is it in the Maryland province in the D.C. area? Where did uh, Father Coleman end up? Something that a lot of people don't realize is that Gonzaga is right at the heart of American Catholicism. There was only one part of the United States where there were a lot of Catholics, and that was the part of Maryland that is right around Washington. 
this area had been founded by Catholics. And although many Protestants had come to that area, Catholics were still about one third of the population, which was a terrifically high percentage. If you went anywhere else in America, the Catholics wouldn't be 1%. There were very few Catholics anywhere else. But not only that, Southern Maryland was where the Catholic rich lived. The people who lived there who owned all the land, who had um, money and leisure for education and so on, were mainly Catholic. So that's where he went. He went to Southern Maryland, in particular, to the little tiny school for boys just outside Washington proper, Georgetown. That was the center of where the Jesuits did all their work. It was from there that they did everything they did in all parts of America. That was the center. And they were supported. I mean, it's, it's so interesting that in early Washington, after Washington became the capital, the people who ran the government, aside from the politicians, I mean, the civil service, the heads of departments, were very many of them Catholic because they were the sons of the local landowners, the people who owned the big estates in Maryland. So this was the center of Catholicism in America at that time. So Archbishop Carroll would have been a contemporary of Father Coleman. At the time that Coleman arrived, he was just bishop. And as you know, he was a former Jesuit. He probably would have remained a Jesuit, except that the Pope suppressed the order. And he became a secular priest, and that's why he could become a bishop. So he was the Bishop of Baltimore. And in 1806, the whole United States was one diocese, the Diocese of Baltimore. And one of the things that's interesting about Coleman is that when the Pope decided to break up this great big diocese, make the Bishop of Baltimore an archbishop and create other dioceses, Coleman was given the job of creating the Diocese of New York. So he moved to New York. As a Jesuit, he couldn't be a bishop himself because the Jesuits, except in exceptional circumstances, don't become bishops. But he was the administrator, first administrator of the diocese, set it all up and got it ready for the first bishop who came from Europe later on. He had a very um, productive career in New York. One, one of the things he did was to buy the piece of land that later became St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. And he built a very large church downtown in New York. He brought in Ursuline nuns from Ireland. He was involved in a famous legal case, which established in American law the principle of the secrecy of the confession. Wait, wait, say that again? American law recognizes that a priest does not have to tell in court what he hears in a confession. And this principle was established by Anthony Coleman. That is the most incredible fact I've ever learned about anything since I started doing this podcast. He heard a confession. A man told him, I stole a bunch of stuff. So what he did was to go to the authorities and say, I know that somebody has stolen a lot of stuff, and I've told him he has to give it back. And the man gave it back. And then the police, the authorities in New York said, now, when we take this man to court for being a thief, you're going to have to testify. And he said, I won't. I won't because what I heard was in the confessional and I'm not allowed to divulge anything I hear as a confession. And then he was the subject of a trial because he was defying the courts. But the court eventually decided that he had the right to refuse to testify. And that's what established the principle of the seal of the confessional in American law. 
I love that Gonzaga has that connection. That's so cool. I have to tell you about something else he did in New York because it's relevant to Gonzaga. He set up a school for boys in New York called the New York Literary Institution. And it was extremely successful. Several hundred boys were enrolled in this school and it was considered a very good school. But the Jesuits back in Maryland in Georgetown told him that he would have to close the school because they could not afford to staff it. There weren't enough Jesuits to run Georgetown and this other place. He rebelled and said, I won't close it. The right thing for us to do is to be in New York City, the most important commercial center of America, a very populous city. And this is where we can really have an influence. But his superiors overruled him and he left and went back to Georgetown. Then he became the president of Georgetown University. But Coleman didn't really ever like Georgetown. He thought, this is stupid. Why are the Jesuits out here in the countryside, a couple of miles from the city of Washington? We can't have any influence here. We belong in the city. He wasn't a very successful president of Georgetown University because there was a big fight going on. On the one hand, you had the European faculty like him, but also on the faculty were some local Jesuits who'd grown up in Maryland. They wanted peace with the Protestants to get along with the Protestants. Didn't want to even try to convert them because they knew that would lead to trouble. They simply wanted to coexist. But Coleman said, no, what we have to do is convert these people. We've got to get them to become Catholics. And that's why he wanted the Jesuits to move downtown not be out in the country. Well, that explains why the location, the original Washington Catholic Seminary location on F Street between 9th and 10th was so attractive. It was fairly close to the White House. Yes, it was quite close. But um, in 1821, the year that Gonzaga was founded, Washington was essentially a few buildings spread out over a very large area with swamps in between, farms in between, Uh, rutty roads that were impassable in the winter. It was almost like a a straggly village in which the buildings were quite spread out rather than a a real compact city, such as it became later on. I think the population in the time of Father Coleman was about uh, 10,000. It still passed for a real town compared to the countryside outside of Georgetown. And this is the part of Gonzaga's founding where a Father William Matthews plays a sizable role. Tim, give us his background. Father Matthews was the one and only priest in the city of Washington. And the one and only church in the city of Washington was St. Patrick's. Matthews was a rich man. He had been educated by the Jesuits, but was a secular priest, didn't take a vow of poverty, and he had a lot of money. So he bought for $5,000, which in those days was a lot of money, a site for a school and invited the Georgetown Jesuits to come there and build a building and set up some sort of a school. And his motive was he wanted the Jesuits nearby because then they could help him in his parish work. So the Jesuits and Father Matthews made this deal and hired the best architect in the United States to build the original Gonzaga building. One of his parishioners, the very famous James Hoban. Who was also the architect of the White House. When it was completed, probably in about 1817 or 18, we're not, let's say 1817, it would have been one of the biggest, most impressive buildings in Washington. 
Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. The building was completed a few years before 1821. The Jesuits were not quite ready yet to move in. So Father Matthews hired a Catholic layman to set up a school. Now we're celebrating this year the 200th anniversary of Gonzaga. But if you wanted to, you could say it actually began a little bit before that because the building was there and a school was being conducted and it was a very successful school. The Secretary of State of the United States at that time was John Quincy Adams and he would soon become the president of the United States and he sent his son to this school that was run in the building that was to become Gonzaga. That son, by the way, he became a very distinguished person. He was the United States ambassador to England during the Civil War. But in his diaries, he talks about going to this building, which had been built for the Jesuits next to St. Patrick's Church. Tim, when we hear the term Washington Catholic Seminary, we assume that what became Gonzaga today started as a place where young men would go to study to become priests. But that's not really how it began. Coleman wasn't sure exactly what he was doing when Gonzaga became a Jesuit school. The first idea that he had was to take the seminarians of Georgetown, the young men studying to become Jesuits, and move them into Washington proper to this new building. And it would be a seminary in our modern sense of the term, a place for training priests. But this was in a period of financial depression. Everybody was poorer than they had been a few years before. And the estates of the Jesuits which were supposed to provide an income for the training of these seminarians, were producing no income at all because of the Depression. So they got the idea that the way to make this new institution work would be to have it be at the same time a seminary and a school for boys. They had seen during the period just before they moved in that there could be a school because the public was ready to have a school in Washington. There hadn't been any schools there up until that time. Coleman decided it would be both a seminary and a school for boys. And as soon as it opened up, September the 8th, 1821, there was a huge demand. The elite of Washington, Catholic, Protestant, whatever, all wanted to send their sons there. There was really no choice for one thing, but they also knew that these Jesuits were excellent teachers. And they knew about the famous reputation of the Jesuit schools all over Europe. The elite of Washington all sent their sons there from 1821 until 1827. In 1827, the Jesuits in Europe made a decision that completely altered the trajectory of the Washington Catholic Seminary and put the running of it back in the hands of the parish priest at St. Patrick's, Father William Matthews. Tim, explain what led to the decision. Well, that's right. The uh, tradition of the Jesuits was that they would offer schooling for free. And they were able to do this in Europe because the Catholic nobility and the kings and so on would subsidize their schools. You could go to a Jesuit school in Europe for free. Yet in Washington in eighteen, the early 1820s, this wouldn't work. They didn't have the endowment to, to, for that type of an arrangement. So Coleman charged tuition. If you wanted to go to his seminary, you had to pay. This meant that the school flourished for a period of years, but that the Jesuit general in Rome was rather upset. The Maryland Jesuits had done something which was against the traditions of the society. So the general 
demanded that they close the school down. If they had to charge tuition, it wasn't worth doing, in his opinion, and he made them close the school. Now, it did survive. The pastor of St. Patrick's decided that he would maintain some sort of a school in the original building, and he did. He hired lay faculty to teach boys who wanted to get a good education, and this went on for 20 years, until finally, in 1848, the general of the Jesuits said the Jesuits can reopen the school and charge tuition. Tim, if we look back at that era, in 1821, when the Washington Catholic Seminary was established, it was established under Georgetown's charter. But once the Jesuits come back in 1848, and I believe by 1851, it's renamed Gonzaga College, the charter itself leaves out Georgetown, and Gonzaga has its own place in the city. If you go back to the early days, there was no difference between a high school and a university. Uh, Gonzaga had the authority given to it by the United States government to give degrees. It did give degrees in the 19th century. It kind of later on turned into what we know, a, a high school. But these various institutions in the early days of, of United States education uh, were a kind of combination high school and college. Well, we still call Gonzaga a college, don't we? Yes. So, Tim, do you believe that Father Matthews really should get a little bit more credit? I mean, obviously, we have a Coleman Hall. Uh, every year, the commencement address is called the Coleman Address. Do you feel like Father Matthews doesn't get enough love in the history of Gonzaga for what he did, even though he wasn't a Jesuit, to keep the school going? Yes, I do think that he deserves some attention from people who are part of the Gonzaga family because he saved the school from disappearing. And he he was a terrifically influential figure in the first half of the 19th century in Washington. As I mentioned before, he was a rich man, one of the Southern Maryland aristocracy. And as such, his family were connected to all the big important families in Maryland, like the Carrolls, John Carroll and uh, the signer of the Declaration of Independence, Charles Carroll. He was related by blood to that family. His estates were across the river from Mount Vernon, and George Washington was a family friend. So that's the kind of clout that he had, you might say, socially. He was a very important person, and he lived a long life. He didn't die until, I think, 1854. He'd been more than half a century the priest in Washington, and he knew everybody. He knew all the presidents. He knew all the congressmen and the senators. He was apparently a very kind of uh, sociable man who got along with people, and he believed very much in getting along with the people around you. Coleman, as I think I said before, was not of that opinion. He wanted to fight the Protestants. He wanted to convert them. He didn't want to be friends with them. And what did this institution that became Gonzaga need? Did it need somebody who always wanted to fight against the established Protestant powerful people? Or did it want somebody who got along with them? So I, th um, I think that um, William Matthews was in fact president of Gonzaga, he was the third president, even though he was not a Jesuit. And that was during the period when, when the Jesuits had withdrawn temporarily from the school, and he really kept it going, 
not just with his money and not just because he was in charge of the building next to his church, but because of his contacts. He founded the Washington Library System. He founded the public school system of the city of Washington. He set up the first orphanage in Washington. He set up the first girls' school in Washington. He was on the board of this and the board of that. He was one of the power brokers in Washington. So he's the guy that really kept Gonzaga going. And it's doubtful that it would have continued to exist, but for him. Yeah, Father William Matthews probably doesn't get the actual love he deserves for his important role in the survival of the school. Now, Tim, there is a very famous event that took place in the mid-1820s that involved Father Coleman, a German mystic, and a woman, a very prominent Catholic, who was related to the mayor. This was one of the biggest gossip stories in the mid-1820s. Well, yes. Mrs. Mattingly. She was a Catholic woman. Her brother was the mayor of Washington, also a Catholic. She probably was suffering from cancer, but certainly she was very ill. The doctors despaired of her and said, she's going to get worse and worse and she's going to die. Well, Coleman had the idea that perhaps he could effect a cure through a miracle worker, a sort of sensation in the Catholic world in Europe and in America was Alexander von Hohenlohe, a German noble who did miracles. He would pray for people and they would get up and say, I'm cured. And the church in Europe was a bit leery of him. They never said what he's doing is truly miraculous, but he was famous. He was well-known, and the Jesuits in Washington had heard of him. So Coleman wrote to him and said, at a certain moment, several months hence, because, of course, messages took a long time to get from one place to another, will you say Mass and pray for Mrs. Mattingly? And he wrote back, yes, I will. So when that date came, one Jesuit said Mass in the chapel at Georgetown, another said Mass at St. Patrick's, and a, a third one said Mass some, somewhere else, and a fourth one went to Mrs. Mattingly in her bed where she was dying and brought to her the Blessed Sacrament. And she received the sacrament, and 15 minutes later got out of bed. She hadn't left her bed for months. And she said, I'm cured. Now, very interestingly, Coleman made the most of this. He went out proclaiming a miracle had occurred. He wrote newspaper articles, letters to everybody saying this is a, a miracle, a miracle equal to the kind of miracle that Christ himself per performed. Matthews, the pastor of the one and only Catholic church in Washington, didn't say a thing. We know Privately, he believed it was a miracle, but he knew if you start saying things like this was a miracle, you're just going to upset people because the Protestants don't believe in that kind of thing. In fact, he was right because a huge controversy exploded. There were articles written about it in every country in Europe, as well as every state in the United States. And all the American articles in the newspapers and magazines said a big hoax. The priests have tried to fool us again. Coleman probably left Washington under a cloud. He had created this great controversy, and his fellow Catholics felt deeply embarrassed by it. And even if they believed in the miracle, they weren't going to say so publicly and upset people. So Coleman left and went to Rome and had, uh, I think, another 12 years of productive work in Rome before he died in 1836. Wow. 
And many folks with Gonzaga probably have no idea the work that he did in Rome after he left the school. In the 18th century, the Catholic Church was quite a loose confederation of bishops. The Pope was not really in charge the way he became. But this generation of Catholics, Coleman's generation, put the Pope in charge. They made the Catholic Church into a unified institution, something it had not been in the 18th century. Coleman wasn't the only figure of his day to sort of have that reaction against what he saw from the French Revolution. He was part of the same generation as Beethoven, born the same year as Beethoven, the same year as Wordsworth, the poet. He was at the same time a Romanist and a Romantic. This is the heart of the Romantic generation. And these people believed that emotion is more important than reason. They hated what the French Revolution had done to Europe. It had destroyed the places that they lived in. It was letting loose the forces of chaos. That's what the French Revolution was. Your job was to say, no, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to go back to the old way. We're going to have kings. We're going to have the Pope. We don't want independence in the church from the authority of the Pope. The Pope is the successor of St. Peter, we must obey. We all know about the doctrine of infallibility, which proclaimed in 1870. Well, that's after Coleman's time, but it's a continuation of this movement. These people were called ultramontanists. Ultramontanist means over the mountains. I think the term was probably invented in French, because from the point of view of France, over the mountains meant Italy. In effect, it meant Rome. It meant making the Catholic Church, totally under the control of the Pope. And he very much believed in that. He was part of that generation, and his style was romantic. In other words, I'm going to do it. I'm right. What my soul tells me inside me is what has to be. And I don't care about all these people who are advocating careful argument and reason and getting along with the other guy and respecting them and so on, like Matthews. He was in favor of, we're right, you're wrong, an in-your-face kind of Catholicism that he believed in. And Matthews was exactly the opposite. These two very different men in motives, temperaments, and vision were so different, but without both of them, who knows if the Washington Catholic Seminary could even survive to become Gonzaga? I think we have to say in the end that Gonzaga was very lucky to have two such founders, very different people, together made the made it stick. You could, if you wanted, think of the whole 200 years of Gonzaga history as a struggle between the European Jesuit Catholic Roman side of things and the American side of things. The school has survived because it managed to find a way to be both. And Tim, being at the heart of a political city, there are times to fight and there's times to figure out ways to get along. If you do look at the history of Gonzaga that way, it begins with these two men who embody the two ideas and who were at odds with each other because they had different visions of what uh, Gonzaga should be. But its survival, I think, as you've said, depends upon both ideas, even if they were not always in in agreement or in harmony, both elements had to be there for the place to survive. 
Tim, as we look at this young country, not even 50 years old when Gonzaga begins, it's a country where slavery was happening and slavery had been a part of the American story up to this point. No real surprise, the Jesuits and Father Matthews both benefited from slavery. I think there were four huge estates that the Jesuits owned in Maryland. White Marsh, which is near Bowie, St. Thomas, Port Tobacco, which is where Matthews came from, St. Inigo's and one other, I can't remember, but they, the Jesuits were among the biggest slave owners in America. At Georgetown, you may be aware the uh, authorities feel very embarrassed by the history of the university, which involves large-scale slave owning. They have a very interesting project, well, they call it the Slavery Project, and they have devoted a lot of money and effort to trying to uh, make up for their history of slave owning. So if we judge these men by the standards of their day, we also have to judge what the theologians and what the church leaders were saying back then about the slavery question as well. Theologians over the centuries concerning slavery was it doesn't particularly matter because all that really matters is your soul, not the material conditions of your life on this earth. The point of living is to get to heaven. You can get to heaven whether you're a king or a slave. They were not against slavery for that reason. They accepted the institutions that were in place in different eras and different countries as normal. You just have to deal with them. So they accepted slavery and owned slaves, sold slaves, fully participated in the system. But what perhaps is unforgivable is taking your Catholic slaves and selling them somewhere where they're not only going to have miserable lives, but they're not going to get to heaven because there are no priests to administer the sacraments. That was the case with the sale of 272 slaves by the Jesuits in 1838 to a plantation in Louisiana. In the fall of 2016, Georgetown history professor Adam Rothman spoke at Gonzaga about the research he had done as a member of Georgetown's working group on slavery. During his talk, a Gonzaga student raised his hand and said, are you aware of any connections between Gonzaga and slavery? That led to history teacher Ed Donellan leading a group of seven students over the summers of 2017 and 2018, conducting their own research. And the results they presented in 2019, Searching for Truth in the Garden, Gonzaga's History with Slavery. You can read more about that at Gonzaga.org. Tim, you have such a wealth of knowledge on Father Coleman, but when you mention that you've been to some of the cities in Europe where he grew up, how did that part of your research come about? I guess it was five or six years ago. My sister was in Europe and my wife was busy So I contacted my sister and I said, let's meet in Strasbourg because neither of us had ever been there and thought it would be an interesting place. And I had this other reason for wanting to go there, and that was to visit the town that Coleman came from. In preparation, I wrote to some local historians in Kaisersberg, the town that he came from, and got them to set up meetings for me and arranged for me to use the local archives where I found some interesting material about me. I don't know about you, but when I travel, I don't like to be simply a tourist. It's much more fun if you've got a reason to be there and you kind of have a real life. You know what I mean? You're not just a tourist, but you've got something to do there. You're part of it. And that's a much nicer feeling. Tim, that is so cool. What a great way to inspire your next vacation. Make it a history project. 
Tim Now from the class of 61, thank you so much for sharing such in-depth knowledge on Father Anthony Coleman and his contemporary, Father William Matthews, Gonzaga's founding fathers, as I like to call them. Next week in episode 15, our last episode of the calendar year, 2021, we'll head into the Christmas break with a special story about Father McKenna and a visit with some of the members of the Gonzaga Business Network to let you know about a big event happening on January 4th of 2022. Be sure to follow, subscribe, and share the Echo Ever Proudly podcast with anyone who you know loves Gonzaga. Until next time, ad maorium, dei gloria and hail Gonzaga. Martin.